Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am David Rothkopf. I am uh, somewhere outside of New York City, um, working on a book, and uh, am... uh, brutalized by the experience. Fortunately, I am joined by people who are more lucid than I am, including, as every week at this time, Ryan Goodman, who's in New York City. Ryan, of course, of NYU Law School. And Just Security, how are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing pretty well, David. Thanks. Uh, See, Ryan uh, infusing this with energy from the get-go. Also joining us, uh, we have our friend Barb McQuaid, who is a professor at the University of Michigan uh, School of Law. She was the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of uh, Michigan. I also noticed, Barb, you seem to be getting into the podcast game yourself. I am. Thanks for noticing. We have uh, Sisters-in-Law is uh, our podcast with uh, Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, and Kimberly Atkins Store. So uh, trying to give you a little competition there, Dave. I don't think it's competition. I think uh, I, th- I you know, we we leave enough time in every week for people to actually eat, sleep, and listen to some other podcasts. Um, so congratulations on that, and I encourage people to go and listen to it. We're also joined by Frank Figluzzi. He's a national security contributor and regular columnist for NBC News and MSNBC. He was assistant director of counterintelligence for the FBI. Uh, we've had him on earlier when he was talking about his book, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Frank, why don't you have a podcast? Well, I, I know you'll be amazed to hear this, but I do. Um, <laughs> and of course, I'm operating on the theory that at some point, every American will have their own <laughs> podcast and we'll just be interviewing each other. Um, but yeah, it's it, it started a couple of months ago. It's become very popular. It's called, of all things, The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. And it's, it's, it's kind of unique, because, well, not kind of, it is unique because the FBI has never permitted an outsider to have access every week to an active duty FBI employee. And that's what we do every week. Wow, that sounds extremely cool. Um, and you're right, you know, Andy, Andy Warhol said we would all be famous for 15 minutes. He had no idea. <laughs> he, he, was, he thought he was, it was hyperbole, but it's not. Exactly. Um, well, you know, uh, Frank, that's a good lead in. I, you know, earlier this week, I saw a piece uh, by none other than uh, Ryan Goodman and uh, Andrew Weissman talking about the questions they wanted to ask FBI Director Ray following his testimony. Ryan, why don't you talk a little bit about the piece and then, you know, offer a question to Frank and, and to Barbara that, uh, you know, might flesh out your thoughts on all this. Sure. Great. So, um, yeah, so the piece that Andrew Weissman and I wrote were a series of like 10 lines of questions for members of Congress to ask uh, Christopher Ray when he appeared this week. 
um, a second time for him to appear before Congress in less than seven days to speak about how the FBI prepared or lacked uh, preparation before the January 6th attack. And now that we've also now in hindsight um, had his hearing, his second hearing, um, Andrew and I have another piece in the works for the Washington Post that does a kind of a critical assessment of how that hearing went. Um, I guess before jumping deep into the hearing, which is a bit of a retrospective, one piece that I also thought about talking about at the outset is a prospect of like, where do we go from here um, in terms of dealing with domestic terrorism? Um, and the same thing, something else that happened, not same thing, something else that happened this week is that the White House finally released its long awaited for national uh, strategy for countering domestic terrorism. And then Frank, you uh, published a piece saying there's something missing here. What's missing are details. And then one specific detail that you mentioned is where I thought you would go based on your other writing, which is the lack of uh, any position really uh, by the White House for or against introducing new domestic legislation that would allow for the classification of some of these groups as domestic terrorist organizations. If, if or, um, or at least you, it sounds like you favor that and you think that there are currently significant gaps in law enforcement because we do not have that legislation. And I would love to hear the two of you speak from your vantage points of expertise as to what is or is not, what is or is not in that gap? What is or what do law enforcement authorities currently lack because they don't have that kind of legislation? Something I, because on you know, the other side of the equation are some libertarian groups that worry that that kind of domestic legislation could be used in nefarious ways against organizations or political association and, and, and the like. So I'd, I'd love to just have hear the two of you talk about um, that particular question in terms of prospectively forward-looking where we should go from here. Um, I, I'll, I'll go first only because you invoked uh, the column I wrote for MSNBC Daily. And I, I want to, and before I forget, I want to I want to just make an important but yet subtle distinction in what I advocate and what I don't in that column. And this, this pertains to the the new national strategy to counter domestic terrorism. Um, and that is that I, I advocate strongly for a domestic terrorism law. That is a law that would make the kind of thing that happened on January 6, which by the way, very, very uh, nicely matches the legal definition that we have on the books for domestic terrorism. I think, I think it is the poster child um, for the definition of domestic terrorism. In fact, Director Chris Ray said publicly in his own testimony previously, what happened on January 6 was domestic terrorism. So I advocate strongly for a law that says, yeah, that there, that's domestic terrorism. Here's the legal definition that we already have. What I do not, here's the distinction. What, what I'm not advocating for um, is the ability to designate groups and organizations as domestic terrorism uh, groups or organizations mm. because of that very concern that you cited, which is the civil liberties concern that this can be grossly abused. Uh, and exploited because as we saw uh, uh, President, former President Trump tried to do via Twitter, if you recall, one day he issues a tweet saying, I hereby declare Antifa to be a domestic terrorism organization. And you know, um, thank God there is no mechanism right now to, uh, to designate groups, especially via Twitter. Um, but if there were, he would have done it. And, and so I, I, get, I get concerned about abuse, but I absolutely advocate for a domestic terrorism law. 
we can, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll give Barb a, a shot at this. And I, and I, and then w I think I'm sure we'd love to both talk about Chris Ray's testimony and the Bureau's, uh, the Bureau pre and post January 6th. Just before Barb speaks there, I, I think we're all fortunate that Trump uh, chose in his tweet to designate a group that wasn't actually a group. <laughs> it makes it a lot, it, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah, as as Chris Ray famously said in in other testimony, Antifa is more of an idea than a, in a group. There's no home office in Peoria or or business card that says Antifa. Yeah, so I agree with Frank, and I think this is a really important distinction that gets lost in our soundbite world today. Uh, you know, people talk about either we do or we don't need more laws uh, to. Uh, go after domestic terrorism. Um, but there are kind of, I see three significant ways that we currently have differences in our laws between international terrorism and domestic terrorism. One of them is this one, I think, Ryan, that you're talking about, the ability to designate organizations as foreign terrorist organizations so that it's a crime simply to provide them with any sort of material support. No questions asked. If you give money to Hezbollah, even if it's for the widows and orphans or the hospitals, that is a crime because they are designated as a group that engages in terrorism. I think in light of our freedom of assembly in this country under the First Amendment, it would be very difficult to have a counterpart to that statute for domestic organizations. You can be a member and hang out with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all that as long as you're not engaging in violent activity. So I think that one, like Frank, is a non-starter. But I think where there is room for a domestic terrorism statute is in uh, two other places. So one is we have this law that makes it a crime to engage in uh, terrorism transcending national boundaries. And there's a very specific definition, but it's essentially an act of violence designed to intimidate a civil civilian population or coerce a government into certain activity with some activity that transcends national boundaries. So some part of it occurs outside of the United States and some part of it occurs within the United States. And that is to make sure that it's solely uh, international in, in scope. But if you instead uh, modified that and said there is now a domestic uh, terrorism statute that says same thing, an act of violence uh, for the purpose of intimidating a civilian population or coercing a government, and it crosses state boundaries. I think that is one that fits what happened on January 6th, and I think that is one that could be focused on conduct and not on group membership, which is what is so problematic in the United States. And then the third part, there is this um, uh, material support statute now that can be used against domestic groups um, if they are, are planning, conspiring to violate other statutes. And if you had this domestic terrorism predicate, uh, then anybody who provided material support to someone who was about to commit that crime could also be charged. So for example, if you know that somebody's planning to go to the Capitol on January 6th and you provide them with the pipe bomb that they're going to plant, you know, at the RNC or the DNC or whatever it is, uh, your provision of that material support for that attack would be sufficient for a crime. So I think it's really important that as we discuss domestic terrorism statutes, that we're really specific about what it is we're talking about. Well, let me follow up briefly, uh, both of your questions. Um, and then Ryan, perhaps you can turn it back to the, the Ray testimony again. But uh, in this last case, Barb, I'm gonna follow up with you first. Um, you talk about somebody providing them with a pipe bomb. 
What if that somebody is, oh, I don't know, in a hypothetical, the wife of a Supreme Court justice and she was funding people's bus rides to the event? Yeah, so I think you could provide, if, if we had the statutes that I just talked about, uh, material support with knowledge and intent that it's going to be used for a terrorist attack. So it's not enough like we have with the international terrorism where I'm giving it to Hezbollah and I, maybe I think it's for good reasons. If the Supreme Court justice's wife thinks I am just funding these buses so people can go exercise their First Amendment rights and they're going to stand with signs outside the Capitol or attend a rally with President Trump, that's not enough. But if I know that the purpose of this trip is to bust down the doors in the Capitol uh, to try to engage in some sort of violence, then that would be sufficient for uh, material support based on a domestic terrorist incident. I'm not a lawyer, but what that standard seems to me to be problematic and it would seem to me that the real standard should be that a reasonable person could assume or a reasonable person should expect that it could lead to violence because if that's the if you know if the standard is less than that or is more than that it provides cover for any funder yeah, and that is that is the standard for what makes it criminal versus civil, I think. You know, frequently we hold people uh, in for civil liability when we have these new or should have known types of standards. But when it comes to something like providing material support, I think the Supreme Court would insist on the kind of uh, mens rea that would mean that the person knew that what they were doing was criminal. So I think it wouldn't be enough. And you're right. It makes it very difficult sometimes to make out the proofs in some of these kinds of cases. But I think it is that rigor that helps prevent us from being the thought police. Well, you know, I, I understand the concern in that regard, and particularly coming out of the Trump era, where you had a president who would certainly use it recklessly if he could. Um, uh, we, we want to be extremely careful, but, but I think we need to be careful of something else. And that's, you know, let me use that to frame my question, follow up to you, Frank, uh, because, you know, as I look at the way the FBI is pursuing this right now, I see a lot of soldiers who are likely to be in trouble with the law. You know, in other words, people showed up, broke a window, broke down a door and so forth. Um, but it, it, you know, it, 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 I don't see a lot of activity about people who conceived it or funded it or promoted it or were the actual leaders behind it. And the degree to which we you know, don't identify organizations, don't uh, seek the connection between the, or, 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 or prosecute the connection between the originator of the idea and the and the executor of the idea um, then you know the you know these the you know the nuts and the red hats become cannon fodder and the and the the, the dark money people and the Roger stones of this world say next one up we're going to do this again yeah I um so you <laughs> You've you've touched a you've pressed a button and uh, here we go again. I say this because I I uh, said something similar to what I'm about to say. Oh gosh, I guess it was last week, uh, and I took a hit. So I said this on MSNBC, and I spent the next uh, two days with death threats uh, because I became featured on Dan Bongino's radio show, Laura Ingram's 
television show. And then Alex Jones picked it up. And here, here's what I said. And here's, of course, they, they edited the clip. But it was a similar question about getting to the, the root causes and, and uh, the people behind the planning. And, and, and I made the analogy, um, which I'm going to do again, um, that if indeed we believe the FBI director that this was domestic terrorism, and we've learned lessons from international terrorism, then indeed, uh, arresting operative after operative after operative, we know from our international terrorism experience, doesn't really help in the sense that the recruitment, um, the inspiration, and the leadership still needs to be uh, tackled, um, and even arrested if they're criminally negligent. That part got left out of, of the Fox News clips, um, because they started to claim that I just wanted to round up Republicans in Congress and arrest them for something. But I'm, I'm with you on this. Now, now, am I optimistic or cynical about whether the investigation is headed that way? Um, I, I honestly don't know. I see signs of uh, that cause me to be optimistic, and then I see signs not. So you just discussed with Barbara some of the, the reasons why the FBI would be extremely uh, reticent to go after even, say, members of Congress who gave allegedly gave tours or provided uh, schematics to the tunnels underneath. This is all alleged. But let's say they look at it and let's say even they determine that yes, certain members of Congress gave schematics of the tunnels or showed them where Speaker Pelosi's office was. All those members would really have to say is, uh, I, I thought there was gonna be a sit-in. I thought it was gonna be peaceful. Um, I didn't know this violence would happen. And, and that, that might work for them. So there's that. There's the obvious political kind of gun shyness, not to use uh, you know, no pun on words with federal agents, but there is a gun shyness right now that realizing that about half of the, the Congress, about half of the population can turn south on the FBI quickly and they can't be perceived as doing something political and, and literally rounding up members of Congress who may have had a conversation with the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. So I, I, I'm, I don't know where, I, where, where this is going. I'm, I'm told that literally, I, I have sources telling me literally hundreds more arrests could be made, hundreds more. And, and implying that you know bigger fish are coming. But on, on the other hand, I see a very conservative uh, attorney general, by that I mean not somebody who's gonna go out on a limb and risk the reputation of the department. Um, I see a very reticent FBI director in Chris Ray, uh, both stylistically and how he answers questions. My Lord, they take half an hour to say nothing. Um, you know, and it's, this is ironic because Bob Mueller was criticized for being a man of extremely few words when he testified. Literally, yes, no, uh, I can't tell you. But but those yeses and nos were fraught with responsiveness, right? If he had been, if Mueller had been asked, hey, you aware of all these allegations about Congress members giving schematics and tours? He would have said yes. And that, that would have said it all, right? But instead, you know, Chris Ray answers the question with 20 minutes of I better be careful. I don't want to get ahead out of the Department of Justice. You know, we don't look at ideology. He, he said nothing. So um, I don't know where this is going. It needs to happen. I'll say it again. Leadership, mentoring, and inspiration, much like the international side of, of, the, of, of terrorism work, needs to get addressed. And if all we're going to do is arrest um, the people who broke windows and got in there, it's not going to be enough. Ryan? I guess one, you know, big question is about the FBI's own actions or inactions before January 6th. Um, and that question got put to Director Ray time and again. Could he acknowledge 
that there was an intelligence failure here or a law enforcement failure. Um, Representative um, Ocasio-Cortez said, um, she said, I, uh, I apologize if I'm boiling this down too much, but it seems as though there has been either a failure to collect intelligence on the interactions prior or a failure to act on intelligence that we may have had. And she, and he says, so she says, which is it? And he basically says, oh, it's neither. <laughs> so just the, in terms of the big picture here, um, what's your impression as to what was, you know, what, which kind of failure was it or was it not a failure? And Christopher Ray's responsiveness to this line of inquiry or his ability to speak to this uh, very significant concern. And just to point out one other just historical footnote, um, just and to reveal where I come from on this, in, in reference to Bob Mueller, it's, it was so interesting that the country lucked out in a certain sense that Bob Mueller became FBI director on September 4th, 2001. So he was not responsible for having led the FBI during the lead up to uh, the 9-11 attacks and was, I think, even sometimes called like the 11th member of the 9-11 commission because he was so helpful and cooperative to the commission to look back and scrutinize what went wrong in order to really get at lessons learned. And here we have an FBI director who is the very person who was in leadership over the FBI in the run-up to January 6th, and then he's in obviously in the position that he is in now. Well, I'll take a stab, but Frank, you're the uh, the person with the lengthy FBI history, so I'll let you uh, answer the bulk of it. I, I, I personally, listening to that, am not satisfied with his response. I think highly of Christopher Ray. I think he is someone who's very experienced and has um, maintained his integrity during the Trump administration in a really important way and leads with an even keel. So there's a lot to like about Christopher Ray. Um, and I suppose I even understand why he doesn't want to um, surrender and give the headline, Ray admits to intelligence failure, or Ray admits to security failure, whatever it is. But it really does seem that uh, I have been dissatisfied with his answers where, uh, you know, everybody knew before January 6th that this big thing was coming, right? I knew because I read about it in the paper and on Twitter and uh, all kinds of people were writing about I, we're worried about January 6th. It seems like the FBI is the only people who didn't know or the Capitol Police. And so um, I wonder to what extent there was some sort of, you know, sometimes this is referred to as confirmation bias, not taking seriously the fact that these are a bunch of white conservatives who were talking about coming to the Capitol. They had had some things before, right? There was the Million Mega March and some other things that were largely peaceful. So maybe they thought this is going to be somewhat like that again. I also know that the FBI gets a lot of um, threats that don't pan out, right? So sometimes you, you have to look for a needle in the haystack to figure out, is this the real deal? Um, we can't chase our tails every time there appears to be something of concern. You have to be, be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. But I just feel like in this instance, uh, especially in light of what we know they got in the Norfolk office that um, was sort of shared, but not elevated to the level of uh, making sure people take took seriously this threat and were prepared for it, that I'm not satisfied with his responses. Now, um, I'd be curious to hear what Frank thinks, having been somebody who's who's been an insider on, on some of these issues. I, I totally agree. Um, I become very frustrated when I see the public and hear the public testimony uh, of, of 
Chris, and I think part of it is style, but I think there's a lot more going on there. And I, I think there is some real concern living on about Jim Comey's experience with prematurely calling press conferences or taking or resting the decision-making power of DOJ away from them during the famous uh, Hillary Clinton email speech, no reasonable prosecutor, blah, blah, blah. I think they, they want to stay away from any po further politicizing of the FBI. And he's remember, he's testifying in, in front of a, at least about a half uh, an audience of hostile uh, people who are just waiting for him to say something like, yep, we're looking for signs of uh, rhetoric that might turn turn violent. Well, no, oh, you're, you're policing speech. So he's every other sentence. He reminds the audience, I'm not, we're not looking at ideology. But here's, a, here's what would be a much healthier, more productive response by him to all of these questions, and, and which we really seem not to get to in these hearings, which is, what is it that kept you? What is it about the DIOG, the, the you know the domestic intelligence operations guidelines, what investigative guidelines? What what is it about the current rules of the road for the FBI that prevents you from from stopping the next act of domestic terrorism? What do you need from us? Or did you have the proper tools in place and simply didn't use them? Maybe because. They were white guys, or somebody at DOJ said, don't do this, or it was because the president was for these people. But just talk about the tools you need or don't have, or, you know, as I say in a chapter of my book called Credibility, just come out and say you screwed up. Just say it. It's much healthier to say, um, we got this wrong. We had some of the tools. Norfolk got it right. The rest of us weren't paying attention. Just say it. But it, it, it was a failure. I mean, I don't know how you call it anything other than that. Now, we could we could get down in the weeds on whether it was an intelligence failure or whether it was a failure to execute on available intelligence. I could go either way on that. I I've, I've usually say it's a failure to execute on available intelligence because clearly the information was there. You could also argue it's an intelligence failure because the collection uh, uh, effort and techniques were not in place, right? But I'd much rather hear a discussion about Look, this could happen again, and here's why. And by the way, I I believe it could happen again. And I I am this is why I'm pessimistic about the new national strategy from what I read, which is I still don't see a change in the rules of the road. I what has changed? I love the whole of a society approach. I love the fact that we're going to get educators involved in teaching social media literacy and critical thinking. A amen. That, that'll take about 10 years. But, you know, yep, let's do that. Um, let's get big tech involved. Let's partner more with big tech. But but what about the rules of investigation have changed that would stop January 6th from happening again? I, I don't see it. I think that hones in on something that I've thought about as well. I My concern with his testimony, one of my deepest concerns, is because he is unwilling to admit that they had the tools and they didn't use them. He is actually misdirecting Congress and the American public to think that it's about the tools, that, there were, uh, that they didn't have certain tools available to them. And, and that might be true, but the way in which he described it doesn't seem right to me. So a, a couple examples are, um, one, you know, I think he should be asked the question in a different way. Do you regret not having issued an intelligence bulletin, a threat? Uh, warning specific to the attack on the Capitol. If you knew, if you had the information that you what, that you didn't do that, um, and instead what he says is, oh no, we were doing these dozens of uh, warnings over time about just political violence and threats around the election, and for the next several months, 
And I think that's one part of it. That's a tool that they didn't use and could have alerted people. I think what the American public doesn't fully understand, what's, what was missing from not having that intelligence bulletin? I think what's missing is um, NPR had this story about it. They said, quote, NPR spoke with three FBI special agents in charge around the country and four current and former DH officials. Uh, they, also, they said a specific threat assessment from the FBI in the weeks before it might well have persuaded Capitol Police and others to beef up security. So all the other failures that we have, like among Capitol Police, et cetera, might have been different if they'd issued that intelligence. Yeah, there's, there's, I, I just want to, yes. it's almost like we have to take a step even further back before that, though, because it, you're... You're, what you're saying is premised on the notion that they were allowed to gather the kind of intel that would have generated a bulletin or a, an advisory. And I, I am not at all convinced that had they issued such an advisory, there would have been criticism that where the heck are you getting this from? Because we think you may have violated some guideline about, are you, are you sitting there monitoring people's plans for a protest? What are you doing? And so I, I, it's chicken or the egg with regard to this thing. I mean, look, it should have been January 6th, that event ratifying the, uh, the electoral college vote should have been designated a national security special event, right? It should, it should have been, we do it for the Super Bowl. We do it for July 4th fireworks. What the heck we, we couldn't do it to, to, for a peaceful transfer of power. Um, and, 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 you know, it's got to be political as to why, you know, because the Secret Service makes that call. They, they're in charge of a, a national security special event. And can you imagine the Secret Service director telling uh, the president, hey, uh, sir, we designated this uh, vote that you can't stand uh, a national security special event so we can make sure it happens. You know, I, I think politics entered into that as it may have done with the advisories. But I, I don't, again, I'm back at square one. I don't think the collection mechanisms are, in, are permissible and in place for, for this to have happened. Barb, uh, let me follow up on that because I, you know, one of the things that I worry about here is the gap between um, the arguments and common sense. Um, you know, in, in, in other words, and I'm gonna give you two examples, but you know, at some point along the line, there has to be an irrefutable argument that there's a threat and somebody's got to ask. Now it could be when there are thousands of messages on the internet saying we're going to meet and we're going to disturb, you know, we want to stop this from happening. It could be when the president says, "Oh, watch this day," you know, this big thing's going to happen. It could be when people got on the buses and went to Washington D.C. and you saw that this was not just rhetoric, but there were thousands of people coming to Washington D.C. It could have been when somebody stood on a stage a quarter of a mile away from the Capitol and said, let's march up the street now to the Capitol. It could have been when they actually got to the Capitol, pushed aside the barricades and broke into the building. But what we know is that the federal government did not respond at any of those points along the way. Instead, it took hours afterwards. And so, you know, at some point it's not we're protecting people's right to free speech. At some point, it's we're willfully ignoring a threat. And just if, 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 if I may, you know, that goes back to the point that's woven into what Frank was just saying. Of course, there was political pressure not to do this. Of course, the director of the Secret Service was not going to go and 
declare this, you know, a, you know, a national security event. Of course, um, Trump was regularly giving out a message about this that influenced those around him. He had replaced people in the government in order to have people who would support him doing illegal things. We know from the McGahn testimony and other kinds of things that the, the, the president was uh, obstructing justice. We know that you know recent revelations about you know that he was trying to overturn the elections, have people overturn the elections, even though there was no evidence to underlie this. There is evidence everywhere of pressure at the highest level. And, and, and when Christopher Ray was asked, is there an investigation into the behavior of the president of the United States? He said, no. You know, and, and all I can do as a common sense, you know, sort of, uh, you know, commonsensical citizen, look into that as go, something's, some, people are willfully ignoring the facts. Yeah, it, it's, it seems to me, I, I agree with you, David, that they sort of uh, were shrinking from uh, the kind of vigorous investigation we would want them to engage in. You know, there was some testimony, and Frank, maybe you can add to this based on your prior work in counterterrorism at the FBI. Uh, Jill Sanborn, who was uh, heads counterterrorism for the FBI, testified in March, and I thought she testified in a way that was, I won't say misleading, I don't think she intended to mislead, but confusing, I thought, in that she talked about how the FBI has these rules, and you mentioned it earlier when you talked about the DIAG, the Domestic Investigations Operation Guide, which was put together after the abuses of the FBI with the COINTELPRO program and you know monitoring of Martin Luther King and Vietnam War protesters in the 60s and 70s, some standards that the FBI has to follow before it can open an investigation. And so you have to have some sort of factual predication before you can begin an investigation. I just can't go out and fish and look at, I'm going to look at Ryan Goodman's emails. I'm going to look at David Rothkopf's emails and see what he's saying. I have to have a factual predication for that. But except there is since about uh, 2008 or thereabouts, uh, there's a new category of investigation called an assessment. And that is used in those kinds of special events that Frank talked about, like the Super Bowl or a fireworks or uh, some big sporting event or political conventions, whatever it is. And I think in light of the information they had on January 6th, this should have risen to that occasion. And that is, even in the absence of predication, I'm allowed at, at, at the FBI to do assessments. And this is what Jill Sanborn kind of ignored um, why didn't they do assessments? Assessments allow them to be a little more proactive and see what kind of chatter is out there. Uh, talk to area businesses, figure out who's staying at the hotels to try to get a sense as whether there is a threat that is being posed to this special event. And Frank, I'm curious as, as to whether you, that, that struck you as the same way about you didn't have to wait for predication. Why didn't you tr use an assessment, uh, which you could have done in light of this this big event that was about to occur on January 6th? I, I literally, so Barb's on the money. I, during my career, I have literally seen assessments conducted on the National Azalea Festival. I, I, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. And, and so, you know, uh, absolutely, it should have been done here. And, and, and then, you know, whether it was, would have been designated national security event first or, or then the, the designation would have then led to an assessment, I, it really doesn't matter. But the notion that 
we all knew that this was fraught with peril that day and what was going to happen and not even an assessment um, was done is indeed a failure. And, and I'm left to wonder whether politics played a significant role in that, in that decision or not. And if so, we need to learn more about that. Cause again, um, it could happen again. Um, I, I also, you know, there, there's some positives. I know we're, we're kind of bureau bashing here, which much of it is deserved. There's some interesting positive news here that's kind of, but, but yet it can be used against them. There were some success stories for the FBI leading up to January 6th. By that, I mean that they say somewhere, be, and they, they won't get sharp on the numbers, but somewhere between a dozen and 19 people who were already predicated investigative subjects were stopped allegedly from, from traveling to the Capitol. Um, and they were, you know, knock and talks occurred. Um, FBI agents went to those subjects, said, we think you're going to cause trouble. Don't even think about it. Don't get on a plane, train, bus, uh, or car, uh, because if you do, that could cross the line and give us the probable cause we need to arrest. And they believe, I'm told, that they stopped at least a dozen people who are some described as badasses from going to the Capitol or, quote, it could have been much worse. All right, so, so that's good news. The not so good news is they seem, as Barbara just explained, they seem to be have constrained themselves only to clearly predicated subjects and who are already previously predicated and not to the broader concern of, hey, let's do an assessment writ large here. Let's have our analysts start looking at Twitter and Parler and all of that and figure out how bad this is going to be. Because if 12 to 19 of our badasses are thinking of going, then maybe there's 500 more people who are going to go that we don't know about. That, that's the, and then you, you've heard about watch listing and, and the, the no fly list and that some of these people were on the, the watch list. I, I do want to clarify this. I, I spent a lot of time clarifying the distinction. You folks know the distinction, but merely being on the watch list, as some of these people allegedly were for January 6th, doesn't stop you from traveling. It, it means you get searched, maybe secondary at the airport. For a domestic flight, it means almost nothing, quite frankly. And if you're clean, um, you get on the plane. That's not a no-fly list. It's a watch list, right? Um, and by the way, it doesn't pertain to the, the main modes of transportation that you people used for January 6th, which is car, bus, and train. Ryan, we have, um, say, five or six minutes. Okay. You, you have the last questions, so use it as you will. Great. So I, I do want to underscore um, what Barbara and Frank just said about the assessments. It's something I'd focused on as well. But it's not just uh, Ms. Sanborn who answered that question. Chris Ray answered that question last week in response to Eric Swalwell, and this week in response to um, AOC. They both asked him, could you have been monitoring in social media? And he responded with the exact same wording, making me think that he was, um, he had been, uh, they had spoken about it and he is prepared to give his response, which was, couldn't have done it without proper predication and we can't just monitor social media, just quote unquote, just in case. He repeated both those words, those terms, those phrases to both uh, Swallow and AOC. And he refers to with, AOC, uh, with uh, Swalwell, the attorney general guidelines as though that's the constraint. And just to read from the attorney general guidelines under assessment, it encourages things like the following. It says assessment activities may involve proactively surfing the internet to find publicly accessible websites and services through which recruitment by terrorist organizations and promotion of terrorist crimes is openly taking place. 
So I, I do think maybe Sanborn misspeaking or something like that time one, maybe. Him doing the second time, <clears throat> unlikely. Him doing it the third time, it just raises a, a very serious concern. And then um, Frank, with what you say about them, the, the success story is part of what I think of as, then if they had that information, where's the threat bulletin? If they know 12 to 19 are coming, and so one piece that it might be a good place to end because I think it's, I thought it was a bombshell of a revelation this week as in terms of a, a news story. It was just eclipsed by other things like Biden and uh, Putin's meeting. But the chair of the oversight committee in her opening questioning of Christopher Ray revealed something new that we had never heard about before, which was that the committee has obtained documents from the social media platform Parler that Parler made referral, she says, 50, over 50 times to the FBI, warning them of threats of violence in DC, including threats of violence against the Capitol before January 6th. And Christopher Ray confirms it. He says, yes, that was, but it wasn't my office, it was a field office. Um, and, that we, and that he didn't know that in advance, he himself. And I just thought, and I'd love your reactions. I thought, holy cow, there's the intelligence failure. You, don't you wanna know why were you not told? That's just such a huge intelligence. The, the director of the FBI was not told that the social media platform Parler, which we know what it contains in terms of its cesspool of information and activity. Um, what have you done about that? Were you, what was your reaction, um, Mr. Ray, when you found out that you hadn't been told? Um, is it, was that as big of a deal, do you think, in, in your minds? Um, that's another thing as to like, how could you not, that would also have been, I think, what would have fed into an intelligence bulletin. They had the par, you know, parlor's information, um, plus the NYPD had alerted them as well. Um, so yeah. I'll give a brief answer and then Frank can elaborate. Um, I'd say number one, um, there's your predication, right? I mean, so uh, number one, I, I agree with you, Ryan, you don't need it. It, it. You can do an assessment and be proactive without it. But if, uh, if, if you're going to use predication as an excuse, it would seem that this information from Parler is sufficient predication to open a preliminary investigation. And then when Chris Ray says, well, I didn't know we didn't have that at headquarters, they had that out in the field, I'd say to him, you got email there? Um, it's pretty easy to communicate that up to headquarters. I, let, let me let me just beat the drum of um, yet again. Here's another reason why we need a commission to figure out what went wrong and what's broken uh, with regard to January 6th. And, and I fear we'll just never get one. And if we get one, it's going to be deemed as a political animal, and nobody's going to pay attention to it, which is which is terrible. Um, yeah, and then the National Azalea Festival. So if if Parler's telling you that you know 50 times we got a problem you'd pay attention to it for the National Azalea Festival. So again, I think politics would have entered into here. I, I think there's, you know, there's almost a tacit admission in the new national uh, countering domestic terrorism strategy about this very thing. And here's how I'm reading the, in between the lines of the strategy. There's a real emphasis in the strategy about we are going to utilize non-governmental partners to do intelligence assessments and data, what? And you, it goes on for a paragraph about the use of non-governmental intelligence collectors. And I read that, and I go, "Okay, is this an end around? Right? Is did they reject Parler and others perhaps because they were concerned that they would become they would be used as agents of the government and surrogates and doing an end around the Diag rules about collecting on 
U.S. citizens. And now in the national strategy, they go, you know what we're going to do? We're going to use non-governmental intelligence collectors to do assessments. Okay, so so now we're outsourcing. Um, and are, is that because we're afraid that we're the Bureau is going to get accused of spying on Americans? So we're going to let Facebook do it, which, by the way, goes on in droves, right? I mean, Facebook has incredibly sophisticated algorithms that tell them, I don't anonymously, right? Frank Figluzzi, we're not going to tell you it's Frank Figluzzi, but this guy in Arizona, man, he keeps talking about hurting somebody. They have that, and they do it really well. And it sounds to me in the national plan that, that the government's saying, we're going to tap into that now, now that we screwed up. Well, folks, uh, uh, thanks. Those of you who are listening understand why we had this conversation. Um, there are some glaring holes in the story here, and there are glaring holes in the way we are approaching it. It is very clear that at some point along the line, people should have known and treated this event with more seriousness. They didn't. We should be asking why. We're not. There should be a commission. There isn't. The Speaker of the House announced that they were going to do something. We still don't know what it is. Um, uh, uh, there is a new strategy to deal with these things. Um, but it stopped short of dealing with some of the root causes. Uh, the investigations that are taking place so far are not dealing with the people high up or the political causes for all of this. And I can't help but observe, in conclusion, that one of the problems we've got is that the more an established political party in the United States acts like a terrorist organization, the more impediments there are to stopping bad acts caused by that organization. In other words, they moved the norm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's easy for people, Christopher Ray and others, to say, well, this was just Republican rhetoric or this was just the party's rhetoric. And, you know, and, and, and even though they had crossed serially major lines of threatening public safety and threatening an institution of the United States government, a process of the United States government, and were, you know, involved in an insurrection designed to pervert the course of the elections, the centerpiece of our democracy. So, you know, there are more questions than answers at this point. We are very fortunate to have people like Barb and Frank and Ryan, uh, also Andrew Weissman in that column and others asking these questions. Uh, I hope we just don't stop because the government doesn't seem inclined to answer them. Because if, if we do, then Frank's prediction, this is gonna happen again, is true. I personally, Frank, will never attend the National Azalea Festival now that you have <laughs> expose the, the risks that are associated with events like that. Um, but I think we all need to keep on this and, and, and look at it and we'll keep coming back to it. Hopefully Frank and Barb will join us again, Ryan, of course, will be back with us next week. Thanks everybody for listening. For more of what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you want to, if you like this kind of thing, if you think it's worthwhile, click on membership and provide a little support. Listen to Frank's podcast, which is called The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Listen to Barb's podcast, which is 
Sisters-in-law. Sisters-in-law. Ryan, do you have other podcasts besides this one, or are you being faithful to us? Always faithful. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, we, feel, we, feel, we feel good about that. And uh, we'll see you all soon. Uh, be healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.